You are listening to Topics in the Bible and the Dead Sea Scrolls with Dr. Miriam Brand. Learn more at understandingsin.com. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Miriam Brand. I am excited to be back with you. And not only am I back with you, but Melissa is also back with you. Say hi, Melissa. Hi, everybody. Um, so it's, it's very exciting. I'm going to talk again at the end of this class about what's coming, but what's coming is, uh, I want to start posting more regularly. And the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to be posting a lot of the classes that I've been giving. So I've been giving a lot of Bible classes and I've been giving more recently a series on second temple literature. So I'm going to be alternating those. You're going to be hearing, um, First, we're going to start with my series on Minor Prophets on Treasar, because that's shorter, so that if people don't like it, you know, I can change the format of the of, of what I'm posting. And that's going to alternate with my introduction to Second Temple classes. And then among those, we'll have Q&A sessions with me and Melissa, hopefully, uh, that well, we're, where we'll answer your questions or discuss certain things that are coming up in reaction to those classes that I'm posting. So let's let's give that a shot. Um, the next class you're going to hear actually is not Minor Prophets, and it's not Intro to Second Temple Literature. It is the story of Pelegish by Giv'ah, the concubine of Gibeah, which is super interesting. I've been wanting to do it forever. And of course, it talks about where collective punishment goes horribly, horribly wrong. So, and you will hear more about that later. We're going to touch on it a little bit in this episode. Because in this episode, I want to, it's kind of a, um, in a way, a bit of a retrospective. We've been talking a lot about how collective punishment changes, what the attitude towards collective punishment is in the Bible, and what the attitude towards punishment, intergenerational punishment, that is punishment over numerous generations, is in the Bible, and how particularly the view of intergenerational punishment changes. And I kind of feel like maybe because we went in depth in certain texts, Maybe people have lost the woods for the trees. So I want to kind of do one, one kind of overarching episode talking about all these issues and touching on the different texts that we've discussed. So first I want to say a little bit about, and just to remind you, the biblical attitude towards collective punishment. Now the biblical attitude, you know, when you say biblical attitude, it gets very, very iffy because you're, you're taking all these books and you're putting them in one basket. But in general, in general, there's an attitude towards collective punishment in the books of the Pentateuch, the you know, books of the Torah, that collective punishment is not good. Okay. It's not a good thing. It's not an ideal thing. Okay. And we're going to see how, why I say that. I mean, you, you actually kind of know collective punishment is not a good thing, but that's the way the world works. Okay. And as I've discussed elsewhere, this is simply the way it is. If you're all living in the same town and there are bad people and there are good people and there's some natural disaster, everyone gets hurt, right? It doesn't matter that there were people who are good. If, as in the prophets, right, there's some, they're bad people. And then, and that means that you're going to be invaded by a conquering army. Good people will also suffer, right? And then Amos is like, why do you want the day of God? It's darkness and not light. Why? Because everyone's going to be hurt once punishment comes. So there's this attitude in the prophets before that are not close to the, the Babylonian exile that are well in the first temple period. There's this attitude also that a bad thing's coming. And if you survive, if you're like Isaiah's remnant, right? The Sheerit of Ishayahu, 
that's just your good luck. It's not so much like you cannot know for sure if you're good that you are going to escape. That is collective punishment, right? And yet it is not just. It is not correct. While the world works this way, it is a problem that it works this way. And we see this in particular in the conversation that Avram has with God, right? In the kind of debate over the fate of Sodom, of Sodom. So if you turn to um, Parakut Fet, that's chapter 18, and if you, I'm just going to, again, I'm not going to read everything in depth in this episode. I'm going to touch on a lot of things, but note that, that why is God telling Avram about this at all? In other words, why does Avram even have to know about Stone? Because God's going to get Lot out anyway, right? He's going to get Lot out. So why does he need to know? And the answer is because Avram is going to be a representative of justice. Uh, if you look at um, 1819, that's a Perakut Okay, because I have recognized him, or I will make him know, so that he will command his sons and his house after him. They will keep the way of God or the Lord, right? The word, you, the name you KBFK is used here, to do justice, to do justice and law, right? So that God will bring to Abraham everything that he spoke about for him. In other words, this is how. Abraham, how Abraham is going to earn uh, what he gets, he's going to do justice. So God was going to tell him what's going to happen to the city so that he learns that he's part of this kind of justice. Okay. And then God says, uh, you know what? The cry of Stom and Amora has come to me because it's great and their sin because it's very heavy. I will go down now and see, is it like this yelling that I'm hearing, right? This cry that I'm hearing, is it, is, have they actually done completely that? And again, whether or not, you know, you know that there's this academic attitude that God in the Bible is not omniscient. It, it doesn't matter here whether God is omniscient or not, because what he's doing is a model to what human beings are supposed to do. And we're going to discuss this a little bit later. It's a model that you never, while collective punishment is a thing, because it's such a problematic thing, you must go and investigate. You can never just have, say, just take a couple of witnesses and say, okay, that, that's it. You have to go and investigate and make sure this, that what you've been hearing about actually happened. So God's going to go down to Stone and investigate, okay? And then, of course, he tells Avram, right? And Avram says, Would you destroy or take a, a righteous person with a wicked person? Or you could also say, say that maybe tzaddik here means an innocent person with a wicked person. Will you take an, if someone who hasn't done anything, will you take them with a wicked person? This is maybe there, maybe there are 50 righteous people. Are you going to, to destroy it and you're not going to lift up the sin, to bear the sin for the city in order to save the 50 people? Okay. And then Avram says something that's very, 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 very daring. Okay. 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 It's like a shame for you, a desecration for you to do this thing, to kill a righteous person, or as I say, or an innocent person with the wicked, and the righteous person will be like the wicked. 
It's a desecration for you. He who judges all the land will not do justice. I will tell you that it's not something that I would say to God's face, right? That's why Abraham is Abraham and I am not. And so Abraham says this to God. And in fact, there's a recognition because right afterwards, God says, okay, if there are 50 righteous people, I will forgive the whole city for them. Okay. Now, how big the city is? Yes, no matter how big the city is. Of course, how big the city is is a given. In other words, in other words, there's an idea that one assumes also that even Abraham knows has an idea of how large a city is. So it's they both know what city they're talking about. They're talking about Stoma and Amorah, these twin cities, right? So they know how big the city is, and the idea is, and I do think that the issue is, as you point out, it's not so much the size of the city, it's the innocent who will be killed. That if you're going to kill 50 innocent people, better to forgive the city. But what's the ratio? So it doesn't matter what the ratio is. I don't think, yeah. I think, I don't think the ratio is, I don't think the ratio is what's important here. I think what's important here is the number of innocent people who are going to suffer. And I'll mention again, my teacher, Mark Smith, who pointed out to me, I was discussing this with him, and I was talking about how Avraham stops counting down at 10, right? Once he gets to, he stops bargaining with God for 10. God promises not to to forgive the city if there are 10 righteous people. And then Avram stops bargaining. And of course, there are a lot of, of, a lot of questions, Midrashim and rabbinic questions, why Avram start, stopped bargaining at this point. But it was in, in a conversation with Mark Smith. So he said to me, but I thought, he says to me, that the point is that man cannot imagine, right, a way to, okay, so you can't, you may... 10, under 10 may be too few to save the city. But does that mean that fewer than 10 people then, do they have to die with the city? And in human terms, yes. In other words, the city is being destroyed. If there are 10 innocent people, there are nine innocent people there. They will be destroyed with the city. But God doesn't have to do that. God gets Lot out, right? In other words, Abraham stops negotiating at 10. Under 10, it's not enough to save the city and then they're just gonna die. God, however, his justice doesn't work that way because he can get the people out, okay? However, let's talk for a second about the, the general principle that's being presented here. And of course, and I think we've mentioned this before, you know, there's the idea, does, does morality exist besides God or does morality exist because of God, right? Does God determine morality or is there some kind of morality that God himself acts according to? The way this is presented, there's some morality that God acts according to. Right? that is known to Abraham. At the same time, it's not that simple because God himself says, why am I saying this to Abraham? So he should learn justice, right? He needs to know justice and teach his children and follow in my ways. So what exactly is going on? God is, is presenting some kind of test case. It's not clear. And you could read this story either way or even simultaneously in both ways. There's both a morality outside of God and the reason it's reaching man is through God. So this doesn't settle the question that easily. You could even read it as God is teaching, he's using this as a, a learning moment, a teaching mo- a teachable moment for Abraham. I'm going to do this and Abraham will then argue with me. Maybe not Abraham is being, but it's, it is very clear that there's a certain morality that collective punishment is against. There's a certain idea that innocent people should not die with the wicked, and yet, and yet it happens. And in particular, Avraham, and I personally, that's what I get from Avraham stopping counting down at 10. 
If there's fewer than 10 innocent people, he's not even going to try to get the city off because they're just, it's not going to work, right? And there's this idea, and yet, yet that's not fair. It, it isn't really just, okay? Now, how do we have this with human beings, right? So even when God does it, it's not really fair. But it's not fair. It's not fair for the innocent to be killed. But for the people who aren't innocent, do they get any punishment at all this Ah, <laughs> right, right, right. So exactly. So according to this, these are your choices, right? That's the whole, that's the whole point. That was the whole conversation I had with my, with my professor that is, that's, that's the choice that Avraham sees. In other words, Avraham sees two choices. Either the guilty get away scot-free or the innocent suffer. In other words, it's got to be either or. Either the whole city goes or the whole city is, is, is pardoned. The fact is what actually happens is something that's not, that's neither. The city's destroyed and Lot and his daughters and wife, at least initially, are saved, right? And his, you know, other members of his family would also have been saved if they were smart enough to run, right? So, so the idea is that God can make it so that the innocent can escape. However, it seems that in a normal situation, those are the two choices, right? Now, in fact, when we have our issue of the, the wayward city, right? The Erni Dachat, right? So if we go to, this is when we talk about what, what about humans? What about humans applying collective punishment? And then that gets harder because it's humans. So how can you do this thing? And the answer is it's got to be in very specific cases where the city really is, the city has become completely corrupt. And, and so let, let's read it for a second, okay? So this is in Dvarim Deuteronomy. Yud Gimel, you, it starts in Yud Gimel. Yud Gimel starts in 1313, okay? So I'm just going to read the, it, I'm just going to kind of translate it as I go and only read the more important stuff in Hebrew. So when you hear in one of your cities that the Lord your God lets you live there, saying, oh, these worthless, it's the, the term is B'nai B'liyal, oh, these worthless people went out from among you and they have led the inhabitants of their city astray, saying, let us go and worship other gods that you did not know. In other words, they're foreign gods. They're, they're other, they're, it's idol worship. Okay, we call idol worship, but worship of foreign gods. And then, this is important, vidarashta v'chakalta v'sha'alta hetev. And you should seek out, and you should investigate, and you should ask well. V'hine emet nachon and that and, and, it, and behold, the thing is true. This abomination has been done in your midst. Okay? You have to kill all its inhabitants by the sword, right? Not only them, but even their animals, okay? And all its spoils you have to gather into the main, you say, courtyard, the central courtyard of the city, and burn it. And the city should never be rebuilt. Now, this is a situation where the entire city has gone bad, and you do not rely on rumor. You don't just let people tell you. You go and you really search it out. You make sure that this is actually what's going on. And I think there's room to interpret it the way it is interpreted that it's got to be every single person, right? It's not a, it's not, the idea doesn't seem to be. <clears throat> that there's anyone innocent here, right? Although it's hard to believe that in a situation like that, there's no one who's innocent, right? But this is this collective punishment. But I want to point out this idea that you must go and you must investigate. And it uses it uses three different verbs to, for, to investigate, to make sure you go down and investigate. Now, in the next class that you hear on this podcast, we're going to be talking about the concubine of where they do not do that. Right? In other words, there's something that horrible happens. We, the reader or the audience, if you're hearing it, 
We know that something ter- terrible has in fact happened. We know that that Giva, that Gibeah is actually a truly horrible city filled with truly horrible people. Although, you know, it has at least one innocent person. And it, it really is, it really, it's really horrible, right? And yet, and yet, the punishment that comes from the other tribes is done in a way on a whim. It's done based on emotion. They do not, in fact, send anyone there to investigate. They don't go in depth to investigate there. They rely on a single witness who, again, we the reader or we the audience know, cannot be completely relied on. And this jumping to collective punishment based on emotions that are based on a true atrocity leads to a series of atrocities. I won't say each worse than the next because there's some middle ones that are pretty bad, (laughs) but they're all pretty horrible. And this is what happens. Part of the lesson is, I mean, a big part of the lesson, as you will hear, is that this is what happens when you don't have a single calm hand on the reins. In other words, here it's just kind of this tribal council, as it were. It's kind of everyone. It's all the people. It's very, and everyone's like, yeah, let's get them. And they make a series of really bad decisions. When you have a situation like that, it's much better. This is what's being presented. It's much better to have someone like a king in charge who can, who can, who has kind of a longer view and can kind of be a little bit calmer and say, wait a second, guys, if you do X, then Y is going to happen. And then Z is going to happen. And then we're going to be in trouble. Right. And there's no one saying that everyone is kind of just going with the flow and going with legitimate outrage about something that's been done, leading them to worse and worse atrocities. You'll hear about that next time. So, I mean, I see a question on your lips, Melissa. I was just wondering how the king would have the power to make such huge decisions. Who's giving the... Oh, that's that's the idea of a king. In other words... I know, but it's still... That's a lot of power for me to have. And if it could be a person also... Well, that that is an issue. Um, What's interesting is that... And we do have corrupt kings that are presented, you know, in the Bible, obviously. You know, in, in corrupt... Israelite kings in particular, but at the same time, the idea is that the king, and, and it, it really looks, if you if you follow how the kings are selected, the tribes have to have to approve them. But after that, they're fairly strong kings. In other words, in other words, when Shlomo's son, Rechavam, thinks that, oh yeah, I can just go, it's in English Rehoboam, right? He he says, Oh yeah. First, I get crowned in Yehuda, right? And then I have to go to Shechem. Shechem is where you get the other tribes to, to okay you, right? And the other tribes are not too fast to okay him. And he acts like it's his kingship by right and not that they have to agree. And he's like, oh, you wait till you see how I tax you. And they're like, really? We don't need you. Right? So, but once they would select a king, those kings could be fairly powerful. And you actually see that those kings had a lot of strength. A lot of times, actually, when you see a, a king getting involved directly with justice in the book of Shmuel of Samuel or of Kings of Malachim, it's in order, it's because if you follow the letter of the law, something, some extra injustice would be done. And then the king steps and then they bring the case to the king and the king is supposed to solve it. So for example, the classic case of the, the woman from Tekoa, which is a fake case, right? But she says one son killed the other son, and now they're going to kill my remaining son. In other words, the murderer will be killed, right? And that's justice, right? But by the murderer being killed, you're leaving this poor woman without any children, and she doesn't deserve that. 
And she's like, so pardon my remaining son, right? That's the sort of case you would bring to a king. Or things where there's no way, like, for example, the famous the famous case that's brought to Solomon, to Shlomo, where, you know, this woman says it's my baby and this woman says it's my baby. There's no really good way to adjudicate it, even though that's unusual. That's brought to show how smart Shlomo is, right? But in general, the idea seems to be that it's a case, you would bring a king a case where the regular application of the law is not really going to lead to justice right? That's when someone would bring a special case to the king. However, in terms of things like going to war, which is what happens with the concubine of Gibeah case, with the plea by Gibeah, they go to war. If you had a king, you would not be going to war on a whim. Kings don't go to war on a whim, right? Particularly if they have control of the people. That is, by the way, of course, one of the reasons why Saul, why Shaul loses his kingship. He loses his kingship because he has a very hard time standing up to the nation, and then he blames them, right? He says, it isn't just, oh, you didn't destroy this. Like, of course, the whole problem, how can you destroy a whole nation and all the things? Like, he's supposed to destroy all of Amalek. And then Shmuel says, you know, famously, you know, meh, call, you know, they, everyone always says, meh, call, you know, what, 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 what is this sound I hear of the sheep, right? And he's like, well, the nation didn't want to destroy the sheep. And look, we're bringing them as sacrifices. But you're a king. You're not supposed to be listening to the nation and what the nation feels in this situation. You were given a commandment. You're supposed to carry it out. So um, Shaul has this constant problem that he's never really comfortable with the people and he never feels really comfortable. He doesn't really know the right thing to do to lead the people. Whereas his son Yonatan does and David does. They both know how to lead the people. And David, of course, can be fairly ruthless. And David, of course, is not can do things that are wrong that are even corrupt, right? But the general attitude is he leads the people. And certainly in a situation where what really goes wrong with Pelagius Bagivat, again, is this collective punishment of an entire town that turns into collective punishment of an entire tribe that turns, it, it just, it gets worse and worse and worse. And these are the sorts of decisions that if you had a king, the king would make. And the king would make it based on less on this kind of general outrage and more on what is the best thing to do in this situation. But we went a little bit far afield from our collective versus intergenerational punishment. But anyways, that's collective punishment. So the idea with collective punishment is even in the Pentateuch, in the Torah, there's collective punishment is problematic. It exists. It exists in the way the world works. It exists in, the, in, in some of the things that people do, but it is always problematic. Okay? It's a problem to apply it, which is why you need extra investigation. And it seems that you really, and frankly, it seems that it should be avoided. And and, and on terms, on a God level, it's not really fair. It's not really fair, even though the world kind of works this way, right? Um, and you see that more in the, in the prophets, when the prophets talk about what's coming and about how everyone's going to be kind of trapped in it. Now, in intergenerational punishment, it's different, as I've mentioned before. Um, intergenerational punishment. So when, when I talk about intergenerational punishment, what am I talking about? I'm talking about the idea that my father sinned, and that's why this horrible thing is happening to me. Okay. Now, this solves an obvious problem, which is, what's the problem that it solves? That, that my father sinned, and that's why this is happening to me. Okay, I'll tell you. <laughs> so the problem that it solves is, if I'm a good person, why is this happening to me? And the answer is, well, someone in a previous generation sinned, and that's why it's happening to me. Um, oh, no, okay. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's, it's like a theological problem, right? Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, it's because of a, a forefather that did something, okay? So it solves a theological problem. It also solves another problem, and we've mentioned this before, and that's what we have 
in in what we call you know the divine attributes. And we usually in Hebrew we call it the shloshes maybe shloshes or the thirteen attributes, even though we kind of cut it in half. And so if you turn to a Shmot Lamedalid of Tzion, this Exodus thirty four six two seven. Any questions before I start reading? Not yet. Okay. Okay. So here. God is revealing his attributes to Moshe, right? As usual, I read the Tetragrammaton Hashem unless I say the full pasuk. The full, the full verse. So God goes over, over his face and he says, or, or before him, and he says, or there's a call I'll just, I'll translate, Lord, Lord, merciful and, merciful and merciful, right? Two ways of being merciful, God, long to anger and with much kindness and truth. He saves up kindness for thousands. He lifts up sin, he bears sin. In other words, he doesn't punish people for sin, he bears the sin, okay? And he does not cleanse it. In other words, he bears the sin, but it's not gone away, right? Now, of course, when we when you know when we in in, in Shul and synagogue say say the thirteen midot, we stop with vinake, right? And he cleans it because our thing is okay. And God, not only does God bear the sin, he also forgives it. That's a great idea, and it's wonderful. But if we're reading the whole verse, it says vinake lo yinake, and he shall surely not cleanse it. Okay, you shall surely not cleanse it. He it counts out, he kind of takes account of the sin of the fathers on the sons and on the sons of sons for third and for fourth generations. Okay, so what does this mean? God bears the sin, but he doesn't get rid of it. I know, Melissa, you'll be happy about this because you don't like bad people getting away with stuff. He doesn't just get rid of it. He doesn't, get, doesn't just get rid of it. He divvies it out over several generations. Now, why does he do that? He does that because if he were going to ask for the, the punish everyone for sin right away, everyone would be dead and everyone would be wiped out. Okay, there's a general idea, which of course it's not true in the way you you apply the legal the legal aspect. Of the Torah, but there's a particularly in Yechezkel, this comes out a lot. But this, but there's this idea that sin is the punishment for sin is death. The real punishment for sin is death. If God punished us the way we deserved, particularly if you're being really bad, God would wipe out families, nations. It would be horrible. You're talking apocalypse, right? So if God actually held everyone accountable for all their sins right away, He could wipe everyone out. Instead, instead He bears the sin. Right, and then he stretches it out. He's be patient, right? Erechapayim, right? He's slow to anger. He's patient. He's he kind of divvies it out over generations so that it's something that people can deal with. All right. Again, this is based on the idea that sin is something real. That when you sin, you cause damage. That damage has to be paid for, and it's got to be paid for through punishment. People must be punished for their sins, and that therefore it's kind of it. Ha- and and you don't want to wipe out a generation. God is good that way, and God therefore stretches it out. Okay. Now he also pays kindness for thousands. You know, he's very gracious. He's very kind. But and and when it comes to sin, God stretches it out. Okay. Now this is. Again, it's it's a theological answer to certain issues, and it also is an approach to well, this guy sinned so terribly. What's going to happen? Is, is his whole family going to be wiped out now? And the answer is no. God's going to kind of you know you know take payment over a lot 
a long time. Okay, so let's look, for example, at a case where this is, and this is important because I'm now going to look at a case which is from around the same time, let's say. It's like, it's like in, a, in a broad sense. It's from around the same time as the passages of Yirmiyahu, of Jeremiah, and of Yechezkel, of Ezekiel that we read and that we'll return to now. Um, Yirmiyahu and Yechezkel are talking about during the end of the first temple period, right? They're right before or uh, and during the Babylonian exile, like the first Babylonian exile, the, the, the you know, the Babylonian exile was in stages, right? So they're, they're both, Yirmiyahu and Yechezkel are talking around the same time. Yirmiyahu is in the land of Israel. He's after the initial Babylonian exile. Yechezkel is with the nobles who are in Babylon, Babylon after the initial Babylonian exile. And they're both talking about the same time. They have a very different attitude towards intergenerational punishment. But at around the same time, Right at around the end of the first temple period, we have the closing of the Book of Kings. Right, because because that's that's where um, this Book of Kings pretty much goes up to. So if we look at Melachim um, Bet Second Kings, Achaf Gimel Chaf Heda Chaf Zion, that's twenty three, twenty five to twenty seven. So if we look at that, we are going to be talking about Yoshiyahu. Now Yoshiyahu in English Josiah Yoshiyahu is a great king, right? He does everything right, okay? But what happens to him? He dies. He dies in battle. He dies younger than he should have, okay? Now, why does that happen, okay? So it spends several verses, the the the, the text spends several verses telling us how great Yoshiyahu was. He did everything right. He did everything right, Okay? And it says, uh, now I'm reading from Pasuk Chafhei, uh, Pasuk Chafhei, uh, verse 25. There was no king like him before him. And they returned to God with all his heart and with all his, his soul or his breath and with all his might. Like all the, the Torah of Moshe and Acharav lo kam kamo. And afterwards, no, no king rose up like him. Ach. But Lo Shav Hashem Mecharona Pohagado, Asher Chara Pabiuda. But God did not return from his great anger that he was angry at Yehuda, Judah, Alkolakeasim Asherich Isro Minashe, for everything that Minashe did that angered God. Why does Yoshiahu die relatively young in battle? Because Minashe sinned. Okay, now this is around also from around the same time in general as we're talking about Yermiahu and Yechezkel. I just want to point this out here. This idea that God punishes us for our forefathers is used and it's used to explain a difficult to explain event, which is Yoshiahu dying before he should have. Okay, now, by the way, in Devarim Ibn Chronicles, which is written in the second temple period, it Actually, you know, the the um who goes up against him, he's like, Why are you doing this? This is against God's will, da, 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 da. So it gives a different reason. Like he should he he's also being actually punished for going to battle. But that's something that's written in the second temple period, the beginning of the second temple period, where attitudes are very different, where it's much more problematic to say that I am being punished for what something that happened a generation ago. Okay, in the second double period, and part of this is because of Yechezkel, right? And maybe a little because of Yirmiyahu, the attitudes changed, okay? But at the end of the first temple period, we can see that both of them still exist. There's an idea that, yes, 
the phrase that Yirmiyahu and Yecheskel are constantly quoting, avot, oh, constantly quote, they each quote it once, avot banim tikena, the forefathers ate unripe grapes and the children's teeth are dulled, right? That thing that, that Jews are saying, right? At this point, you can call them, they're all they're pretty much Judahites, right? The Jews are saying that we're being punished for something generations before did, right? Now, Yirmiyahu kind of, if you look um, in Yirmiyahu, if we look at Yirmiyahu, Lamed Aleph Chavchet, 31, 28. Actually, let me pause here because I see a question on your lips, Melissa. I'm still, I don't know, I know I've asked this before. If you know you're being punished for something that happened before you were even born, what's your motivation to be good if you're going to be punished anyway? Why would a king be so great with the knowledge that he could be punished? Oh, oh well, you actually have this thing. The reason, Part of the reason is he's so great is that he's hoping that he can stave it off a little. He's, he's hoping, he's like, oh my God, we're in really real trouble because he discovers this, this, this Torah and, there, and no one's been doing it. And he's like, oh my God, we are in trouble. So he says, okay, maybe I can get things together so that we don't really suffer from this. So that's one attitude is that like maybe by doing good, I can somehow at least postpone it, at least postpone the punishment. That's one attitude. And another thing is, I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to be punished for what my father did. I don't know. How, I don't know if he would, if, 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 if it's all used up or not. I don't know. I don't know till it happens. Right. It bothers so, me to think of God feeling better after doing that kind of thing. Like, yeah, yeah, I, it just, yeah. Yeah. So the point, I think the point here is not so much God feeling better, quote unquote, but more, this is kind of justice being like, done, I guess. Benefit? Just for the sake of justice. Cause I don't see the benefit anywhere. Well, the idea is, again, the benefit, it's, it's like if, let's say, I knock into the wall and I knock a chip out of the wall and you say to me, I don't see the benefit. And you're like, I'm like, yeah, <laughs> there's no benefit. I knocked into the wall and now there's a chip out of the wall. And now I have to pay money for someone else to fix the chip in the wall. Okay. So I, now you could say, well, who, who benefited from that? Okay, the guy got some money for, for preparing the chip. But you'd be like, well, so what, what was that all about? And the answer is, well, I made a chip in the wall and now someone has to fix it. And the idea is if you believe that sin is something real, then something's got to give. Now, that attitude shifts and that attitude shifting is what allows for Yechezkel to really describe a whole system of repentance, right? So first we have Yirmiyahu. Let's, let's, let's at least do Yirmiyahu first before we get to that. So Yirmiyahu, Lamed al 31, 28. Okay, here we go. He's talking about the future. You know what, let me, I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back to 26, Chavav. Okay, did I say it was going to be, were you Chavhe? I said no, Chavchet. Okay, so I'm going back to Chavav, which is 26. So God says their day's coming and I'm going to sow the house of Israel with the house of Yehuda, the seed of man and the seed of animals. And he says, God says, just as I was determined against them to pull out and destroy, and then he gives a whole bunch of different verbs for destroy. As, just as I was determined against them to completely destroy them, to uproot them, to smash them, to destroy them, and, and to do be bad to them, so I will be determined to build and to plant, says God. 
בימים ההם, in those days, לא יאמרו עוד אבות אכלו בוסר ושני בנים תקנה. In those days, no one will any longer say the fathers ate unripe grapes and the, and the children's teeth were dulled, the son's teeth were dulled. כי אם איש בעוונו ימות, but each person will die for his own sin. כל האדם האוכל הבוסר תקנה שיניו. Whoever eats the unripe grapes, he's the one whose teeth are going to be dulled. So in other words, in those future days, when God brings all his people to his land, in those future days, people, no one will be able to say we're being punished for our, our parents' sins. Everyone will die for his own sin. Everyone will take his own consequences. That's what Yermia says. Yermia says, in this future time, no one will be able to say that. Now, Yechezkel says something very different. Yechezkel says, you can't say that now. Forget future time. This is not accurate. This thing that you say, it's just not true. Right? So if we look at Yechezkel Yud Chet, Ezekiel 18, Yud Chet Bet, 18-2. Malachem atem moshlim et hamashal hazeh al admat Yisrael emor avot yochlu voser v'shinei abanim tikena. What is this to you that you are, that you bring this parable, this saying, On, on, when you were on the, on the land of Israel, in other words, when you were before the exile, this is what you would say. The fathers eat unripe grapes and the teeth of the sons are dulled, will be dulled. So say I, says God, you'll, you'll still be able to say this, this saying in Israel. All these lives are mine. The life of the son and the life of the son, the life of the father and the life of the son are likewise mine. The, the life that the person that, that sins will die. In other words, why would I care? What it sounds like is why would I care less about the son and the father? Why am I saving the father for the son? Right? They're all mine. They're all mine. Right? So the person who sins, that's the one who's going to pay the consequences. Right? And then Yechezkel goes into a whole talk explaining that if you have someone who is good and then his son is wicked, the one who is wicked is going to die. The son who is wicked has the son who is good. The son who is good is going to live. And there's no, there's no, no one saves their child by their goodness and no one condemns their child by their wickedness. Everyone, everyone lives according to their goodness or wickedness. At the same time, if you are righteous now, you will live. And if you are sinful now, you will die. If I've lived 20 years being righteous and I'm like, you know what, to heck with it, I'm going to be sinful, dead. If I live 20 years being sinful and I'm like, you know what, I'm going to be amazing now, I'm going to give back everything I stole, this is important, I'm going to give back everything I stole, I'm going to right all my, ex- all my other wrongs, and now I'm going to be good, I live. Now, of course, the big logical hole in this is when do you start counting, like when's that day? When's the day that God says, okay, you're righteous, now you live, you're sinful, now you die. If you're giving someone an opening for repentance, then what is it? Because like, Yechezkel is not saying, and at the end of their lives, they do repentance and they're forgiven for everything. Yechezkel, remember that when we're talking about Yechezkel, we're still not talking about a super developed afterlife, right? There isn't this idea, you're going to go to heaven, you're going to go to hell, right? There, in general, we don't have this idea in the Hebrew Bible. Okay, you don't have the idea. You go down to Sheol, right? You're going down to the pit, right? There isn't much, you know, and if we do, we get much later books. In Daniel, there's, there's like, you know, you're writing in the book and stuff like that. But there's no, oh, they're going to heaven, they're going to hell. It's you die or you live in this world, right? You die or you live. And Zichezkel's thing is, you, if you want to live, you have to keep being righteous. 
You don't get extra credit because you were righteous yesterday if you're sinful today. If you want, if you're sinful, you're going to die, right? And what's interesting is, of course, now, of course, you say, well, you know, this is God. You know, if, if, and this, I, I get this a lot when I teach, they're like, but it's God speaking. Well, that's fine. It's God speaking. But the prophets are speaking in their own words. Each, you can see from reading the prophets, okay, that each speaks in their own words, in their own language, to their own time, with their own thought, um, with their own, in, in within a certain worldview, okay? And we can see already from Yechezkel, and this is why Yechezkel is quoted so much on the prayers for Yamim Noraim, the days of awe, right? Because we get uh, all of our biblical sources for repentance, for teshuva, are pretty much coming from Yechezkel. They pretty much come from Yechezkel. We have Micha saying, you know, throw our sins into the water. So that's pretty close, right? But besides that, we it's Yechezkel who really sets out, who really sets out this idea that you can repent from your sins and then be, and fix what you didn't run, repent, and then you'll be free and clear and you live and everything's fine, right? You have this in Yechezkel. Now, this is super important because just like you said, Melissa, there's a problem there's a big problem with saying our, our forefathers sinned and we're being punished because then how do you get out of it? And that you see in Yechezkel, Paraklam and Gimel, chapter 33, okay, when I'm reading now from Pasuk Yud, from, from verse 10, Vata ben Adam emor obeit Yisrael ken amartam lemor kipshainu v'chatotenu aleinu uvam anachon nemakim ve'ech nichia. And you, man, God is speaking to Yechezkel now, emor obeit Yisrael, say to the house of Israel, so you said, or you could read it correctly, you said, our, our sins are on us and we are, we are crushed with them. And how, and how will we live? And Moralehem say to them, just as I live, says God, God gets to swear on himself. As I live, says God, says God, if I want the death of the wicked person, as you said, Melissa, who benefits, right? If I want the death of the wicked person, but rather, I want the wicked person to return from his path and live. Return, return from your evil paths. And why should you die, house of Israel? And then, then once again, Yechezkel sets out this idea that each person is judged for himself. This is once again in chapter 33 in Gibble. He once again sets out this idea. Everyone is accountable for themselves. Everyone is accountable for this point in time. And what that does is it frees you up from previous sins. It frees you up from previous generation sins. And it means that now you can rise up and not be crushed by the previous sins. Now, this is something that his audience in particular needs to hear because the temple is destroyed and they're like, oh my God, we sinned. We sinned. Our temple is destroyed. How do we, how do we rise up again? How are we a people again? How can we say we serve God? And Yechezkel says, no, God wants you to live. God wants you to be good. You can still rise up and do this. Uh, and that is super, super important in Yechezkel's message. And it's part of the, how the, intergener the idea of intergenerational punishment really falls by the wayside because while it offers a kind of a theological answer, why are these bad things happening to this good person, it creates, it ends up creating a much greater problem. And once you say sins can be erased, that's when you have, have this idea of repentance. Once you say, no, you know what? God wants you to live, so just don't sin anymore. 
for a previous generation, that would have been completely impossible. It's hard for Ikesko's audience now, because Ikesko keeps on saying, you know, you say it can't be, and I'm saying it is, right? Because it's hard for people to accept, even at the time of Ikesko, that a sin can just go away, right? If you think of something as sin as concrete, it can't just go away, right? But no, a sin, now again, he, does, he specifically doesn't talk about things like murder going away. Right? He specifically talks about things like, oh, you stole and you return it and then you be are righteous, right? He specifically doesn't talk about things where you really can't fix it. But and then we get to the standard interpretation of the divine attributes, which is when does God punish the children and the grandchildren? Only if they continue the sin of their forefathers. So what we saw here, what we saw here was that collective punishment remains problematic. Okay, now Yechezkel also, this is something I did not say, Yechezkel, besides breaking down intergenerational punishment, saying you are not responsible for someone in previous generation, he also breaks down collective punishment. He says, and also that a righteous person can save a whole city. He says, you know, and this is the way the whole world works, Yechezkel says. Yechezkel says, you know what, if Job, if Eov and Daniel, we fix it to Daniel, but it's clearly he's talking about Daniel, who was this mythic righteous judge, and Noah were all, you know, if they were in a, 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 a sitting area, they wouldn't be able to save anyone. It would just be them surviving in the wilderness. In other words, God doesn't do this thing where he kills the righteous for the wicked, and he doesn't do this thing where he saves the wicked for the righteous. He, God, picks and chooses, okay? So once we get to Yechezka, once we get to essentially the beginning of the Babylonian exile, that's when the always problematic collective punishment is really rejected, okay? And part of the reason why it can be rejected is because now, I think, part of the reason it can be rejected is because now you have Jews living in different areas of the world, right, where it's very clear that what happens to the Jews who remain in Jerusalem is not what's happening to the Jews who are already exiled to Babylonia, and vice versa. So no longer is it so obvious that anything happens is going to affect everyone. It, your people, people can already think in a way saying, wait, it doesn't have to affect everyone because what happened to me yesterday is not what happened. It did not in any way affect those people at home in Jerusalem. And what happened to them yesterday isn't affecting me. And that means that you can have good people and bad people that are getting completely different fates. So it's really, when we get to Yechezkel, that it's we we are breaking away from the idea of intergenerational punishment, which at one time was perfectly accepted and was a solution rather than a problem, and also breaking more away from the assumption that the world works with collective punishment, which was always problematic in biblical thought. So I hope you enjoyed that, and I hope you like the class on Pelagish Begivan, the Concubine of Gibeah, that's coming up. I hope that answered some questions for you, uh, Melissa. And I gave you a lot to think about later. <laughs> Anyway, so thanks for joining me. Goodbye. Bye, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to Topics in the Bible and the Dead Sea Scrolls with Dr. Miriam Brand. Learn more at understandingsin.com.